Hey guys, it's your boy Noir. Have you ever heard of Noir? Nah, not me. I mean Noir Coin. Noir is a decentralized digital currency created to ensure your transactions are secure, private, and untraceable. They use this fantastic protocol called Sigma, which provides you complete anonymity over your funds. It has a 2.5 minute block time. What I thought was really cool is that it's a community governed currency. So all of the decisions are made by the community. So check it out. It also has no max supply. So anyone can mine Noir and use it every day as a daily payment method. You want more information? Make sure you follow them on Twitter at NoirCoin. That's at NoirCoin. And make sure you check them out at NoirOfficial.org. That's NoirOfficial.org. You're listening to the only place on the internet that offers the perfect blend of high-quality premium cigars and cryptocurrency news and commentary. Welcome to Cigars and Crypto. Now here's your host, Invest Noir. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Cigars and Crypto. And let me tell you how happy your boy Noir is this morning. I had the opportunity to speak with Master Yoda himself, Jameson Lop. Sir, how are you today? Not bad, though. I'm currently short on cigars, so I need to rectify that. <laughs> That's no problem. I will definitely help you with that. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Um, let me jump right in, my friend. How did you get into cryptocurrency? Well, I took the nerdy path. So I'm a computer scientist by trade. I had been out of college for about 10 years and was you know, regularly browsing uh, nerdy news sites like Slashdot and uh, this Bitcoin thing, it, it kept coming up and, and I kept dismissing it as, as something that you know, was going to get hacked and everybody was going to lose their money. And so I, I didn't really spend much time looking at it uh, the first few times because I was dismissing it, which I think most people do. But then it just kept coming back and kept coming back. And eventually I decided, okay, I should at least you know, read a little bit about it. And I read the white paper and from a computer scientist standpoint, I, I thought, hey, you know, this is actually a very elegant solution to a problem that I've never even thought about before. And, you know, maybe there's actually something worth looking into here. And, and then just more from a philosophical standpoint, once I started thinking about money, because most people, they go their entire lives without really thinking about how money works. They just use it. And I was the same way. But once I really started thinking about how money works, it made sense to me that money should be an open collaborative project where anyone who wants to can contribute to it. Because money is just this abstract concept that belongs to humanity as a whole. And I don't think that the operation of money should be dictated by a closed group of people. That's a very interesting concept. I, I had a wonderful discussion with uh, Stefan Levera and uh, Kitan Galubdis a couple of weeks ago, and we touched on that exact same thing, how people don't really understand what money is. They just use it for a specific use case, but they don't get how pervasive um, money is in the society and how it's used um, to control 
a lot of things uh, outside of just your single purchase. Um, so let me touch base on that a little bit. When you think of money, so that my listeners understand, what do you define as money? Well, I mean, money is just a a common agreement among people of a way of uh, denoting, you know, who owes who what. And the reason that we have money is 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 basically as a efficient mechanism to get rid of something that is called the uh, double coincidence of wants. And that's a really fancy way of saying to bypass the bartering system. Because if you don't have some sort of medium of exchange, then you have to directly go out and find someone who has exactly what you want and also wants exactly what you are willing to trade. And of course, that can get really complicated and, and has a lot of, of overhead uh, on the sort of mental side of things and the, the, the work required to, to correctly match people up. So when we can get rid of the need for bartering and just have a, a single uh, unit of account, then that allows people to just exchange goods and services for that unit of account and then have... Uh, some level of confidence that they will in the future be able to exchange any of that unit of account for whatever they want. Uh, so this is really more of an, an efficiency type of thing. That was a beautiful explanation. Uh, money to me is, as you said earlier, a social contract. Is it, it is an agreement between two people for the exchange of a value or service with a monetary unit. And that monetary unit should ideally be accepted by anyone for anything. When people realize that the power behind money is the power that it is given by the people and not by central banks or issuing entities, your view on money really changes. And that to me is the appeal of uh, Bitcoin specifically giving individuals the power of knowing what money is and defining what money is for them. Absolutely. So, and, and, you know, once you really start looking into the history of money, you, you realize pretty quickly that the, the idea of uh, money being defined by some small organization, government, bank, whatever, is actually a fairly new concept and that there have been uh, a variety of forms of money throughout history that uh, were just socially settled upon organically based upon what was available at the time. Totally agree. I totally agree. So let me jump into something else really quickly. First and foremost, as an individual has, who has benefited from what you have done, I want to take a moment to thank you for LOP.net. Ladies and gentlemen, L-O-P-P.net. I want to thank you for that, sir, because when I got into crypto Twitter, um, that was the first resource that I was directed to um, by my friend Nancy Godson. He said, if you want to know about Bitcoin, you need to go here. And when I visited the website, any and everything that you would want to know about Bitcoin um, about the economic side, about wallets, about how it works, the technicals, 
links to the white paper, any and everything that you would want to know about Bitcoin, you can find there. What what precipitated, what made you build Lop.net? Interestingly enough, it's the same answer to almost everything else that I've built over the, the past uh, seven or eight years that I've been in this space. And that is, it's self-serving because it's, it's saving me time. Essentially, I started building this catalog of resources because I was spending so much of my own time answering the same questions over and over again. And every time I did that, I would have to go search for the same resources and uh, just, you know, collaborating uh, with some other people to, to collect them all and put them in one place. I found saved myself a lot of time and saved uh, almost everyone else uh, time whenever they wanted to look for anything uh, because the, the very nature of this space is that it is highly distributed and uh, there is no you know, central authority in any of the, the variety of aspects of the space, including the educational aspects. And so while I, I do produce a fair amount of unique educational content myself, there are many other people who are very good at educating people in other ways, uh, since I mainly focus on the technical side. And, and this has been probably one of my my most uh, time-consuming projects because it is an ongoing thing. The, the space continues to evolve. New websites, new content comes out that I need to add. Uh, occasionally, some people leave the space uh, and stop maintaining things, and I have to remove that content to make sure there aren't dead links. But um, it has... It has helped me, you know, stay on the the sort of cutting edge of the research and education in the space because I'm constantly on the lookout for new high quality material that I can put on here. And as as is the case with really anything else that I'm working on, um, feedback is always appreciated. And I've I've put a lot of effort not only into curating the content on the page, but but trying to make it as user friendly. Uh, to as many different people and you know many different uh, ways that people may be accessing it, but there's always room for improvement. I think it's a fantastic resource. I frequently refer people to it when I am trying to onboard people. Um, I have the benefit and the pleasure of enjoying the company of some really nice cigar smokers. And uh, we tend to talk about any and everything under the sun. And uh, I guess I was talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies a little bit too much because now uh, the conversations at the lounge revolve around crypto and the markets and things like that when I walk in the room. And so uh, I want to thank you for making my life easier because I'm able to point people to lop.net uh, when they have questions and they and they begin that descent down the rabbit hole. Um, Question for you. One of my main objectives, both as an individual, uh, as a content creator and as a business owner, is onboarding people. Um, my sole goal and purpose outside of my nine to five job is adoption of cryptocurrencies. I've had the benefit of having discussions with some of the best and brightest people in the space. Uh, definitely including you. And I'm hoping to get your take on what we need 
to foster and nurture adoption in this space. For a very long time, I've tried uh, uh, the talking points or taking the developer's view when I'm trying to onboard people by talking about double spins and uh, transaction times and block height and block speed. And those things don't tend to resonate with people because they don't really care about those types of things. How would you, what do you see as the best way to promote adoption in cryptocurrencies? Yeah, this is a very complicated question. Um, I've tried a number of different approaches myself over the years. And, you know, when I first got interested in the space, I was um, basically evangelizing Bitcoin to everyone that I came across. And eventually I realized that, you know, most people just don't see the value add of the system. And, and that is mainly due to the type of people who I was interacting with, which was generally, um, you know, middle-class, uh, well-off people who have good access to financial infrastructure and probably haven't really had many problems with the existing system, at least not that they have noticed. And so with, with those type of people, I was often taking a very long-term type of approach of, well, you know, don't you see that your money is slowly being debased year after year. But it's a hard argument to make because it is generally imperceptible, at least to people who store their value in U.S. dollars because the inflation amount is fairly low um, and the timescales we're talking about make it hard for people to, to realize unless they're fairly old and they can remember what it was like to you know buy a gallon of milk for 10 cents or buy a gallon of gas for 50 cents. And so you end up having to kind of have a discussion with each person individually to figure out, you know, what is their perspective and what might be the things that trigger them. And, and there are a variety of different reasons why people may be interested in Bitcoin. If they're technical, they may be interested in the technical aspects. If they are, uh, fairly libertarian or, or anti-government or anti-bank, then they're probably going to be more interested in you know, having a system that is outside of the control of any of these authorities. Um, otherwise, it's it's probably a lost cause to try to uh, to convince people who have you know access to credit cards that this is like an interesting new payment system. You probably have to go along the path of some of the more like philosophical and ideological stuff. Because if, if someone has good access to financial infrastructure and they're not doing anything that is currently considered taboo, then they, they probably just don't see much need to, to search for alternatives. And so I, I kind of flipped a question on its head now and say, well, do we really need to be going out and evangelizing uh, to everyone we meet that, hey, this Bitcoin thing is really cool and you should be using it? Or should we be taking the kind of opposite approach and trying to find the people who need Bitcoin the most? And 
you know, that would be people who are in countries that have terrible economic and monetary systems. The, the people whose value is getting hyperinflated away and they can see the need for a better store of value. Or for the people, even in first world countries, who are doing things that are uh, like gray market area, uh, whether or not that is like dealing with... Uh, drugs that are legal in some areas but not other areas and are generally shut out of the banking system or whether that is uh, people who are like working in the sex trade whether illegal or legal um, they tend to get shut out of the banking system it's um it's it's really i think more of a question of we 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 know that in general most everyone would benefit from from Bitcoin in some way in the long term, but there are certain classes of people who would benefit more today. And those are the people who are probably going to be more likely to actually invest time educating themselves to figure out, well, how do I use this system? Why should I use this system, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why I don't really go around anymore and try to evangelize to random people or even friends and family <laughs> that they should be using the system because if they don't see you know obvious value in using the system then it, they're just not ready for bitcoin bitcoin's not ready for them and that's okay you know we we don't have to try to push for mass adoption immediately um, if we continue to improve the system then the value should become obvious to other groups of people over the long run as the network continues to grow. And, you know, if you look at the history of Bitcoin adoption back in 2010, 2011, and so on, the, the first real adoption spurt actually happened as a result of darknet drug markets. That was the first real use case that showed the utility and the value of a censorship-resistant payment network. And you know there are many other um, use cases that Bitcoin can facilitate that cannot be facilitated by the existing system. And I think that we need to more look at making those use cases more user-friendly. So whether whether that's talking about um, micropayments, which is something where Lightning Network comes into play, uh, or you know, cross-border remittance-type stuff. Um, I'm more interested in you know, sussing out the use cases where Bitcoin obviously shines over the existing system, and 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 hoping that by building those out, that you know, if you build it, they will come, or at least the people who need those. Uh, those use cases and that functionality will will find it, and then naturally that will grow the network, and and sort of a viral feedback loop will occur where the more people we get into Bitcoin, the more they're in, interacting economically with others and saying, "Hey, I prefer to you know receive my payments in Bitcoin." You know that kind of organically evolves the network over time. And from a, a technical standpoint, I think that that's probably a, a better way to go about it as well. Because quite frankly, from a scalability standpoint, we can't onboard everybody in the world right now. Um, it, it actually makes more sense to me that we're onboarding people, you know, one, one, one class of use cases at a time. And that way we, we have more time to continue to evolve the system because this 
is, is it's far from a, a complete uh, system at this point. I think you touched on something that makes a lot of sense. Um, niche markets and niche use cases. I think about uh, medical and uh, recreational marijuana uh, producers, uh, retailers, how they could use Bitcoin. Um, and I totally agree with you that we are not at a point um, in the history or technology of Bitcoin to onboard everyone in the world. And that is a great segue into my next question. Do you think the technologies that are currently uh, being discovered and worked on right now in the Bitcoin space will create the ability to onboard more people? And I'm, I'm referring to things like uh, SegWit, privacy features like uh, Mimblewimble, uh, Schnorr signatures, uh, layer two technologies like Lightning. Do you think those things are going to really help to get um, to build the infrastructure that we need to onboard more people going forward in the future. Yeah, I mean, we need as many different scalability options as possible. I don't think that there's any single technological improvement that is going to make any of these blockchain systems uh, scalable in the way that won't require uh, massive trade-offs in the, the security model. And so uh, Lightning is something that we've been focused on for the past year or so at CASA. And you know, Lightning, despite all of the user-friendly interfaces that we've built uh, at CASA, there are still many complicated things we have not been able to um, abstract away and hide from the user. And so... While you know having second layer networks fundamentally gives us a much better level of scalability and like how many transactions can be processed, uh, it also adds a lot of complexity, which means even more engineering work has to be done to uh, basically shove that complexity underneath the hood and hide it from users. And so, a really good example of that is um, the. The fact that you know, in order to use Lightning, you have to create these channels and you have to fund them with on-chain transactions and then you have to worry about balancing liquidity across the channels to make sure that your payments don't fail and that you can you know, find routes to make the payments across the network. All of these things are problems but will probably still require years of work in order for us to build enough uh, software and logic where we have learned what all of the failure cases and edge cases are and we can have the software handle them automatically. But right now, if, if someone actually wants to use the Lightning Network, uh, at least in a non-custodial way where they're running their own node, it, rec it still requires a fair amount of technical sophistication. And so as a result, it's still a fairly early stage hobbyist thing for people who are really interested in the cutting edge. But... Um, that type of stuff, uh, future improvements to basically aggregate channels and aggregate uh, transactions so that you know many people can be transacting with each other, but on the blockchain it just looks like one single transaction. You know that gives you both scalability improvements and privacy improvements. Um, 
I'm hoping that, you know, that type of, of aggregation uh, technology for signatures and, and transaction construction will come along and, you know, it's still going to be a long uh, process due to the conservative nature of Bitcoin engineers is that as much as we would all love to have a network that is capable of onboarding the entire world tomorrow, uh, we want to do it in a way that doesn't require massive trade-offs to uh, the security and the ability for people to operate essentially in a quote-unquote trustless manner on this network. And, and that basically means that we're going to have to do this you know, piecemeal, one, one little bit at a time, sort of baby steps year by year, so that it can be very frustrating for people who are used to uh, watching the pace of technological adoption go really quickly because there's, there's this natural friction where it's almost like uh, aerospace engineering mindset of uh, there are a lot of people in Bitcoin who believe that you know this is our our one shot at doing this right and that if we make a mistake that it's catastrophic we may not get another good shot at at building a system that is quite the level of bitcoin um, basically this goes into some of the more philosophical and ideological issues of, of sort of the "Quote unquote immaculate conception of Bitcoin," you know the fact that it was created and bootstrapped, and it has no uh, authoritative leader or founder who can wield power or influence over the system. I think it would be very difficult to recreate the set of conditions that allowed Bitcoin to evolve in the way that it has. Because I mean, you can look at the thousands of other altcoins out there and see that uh, while some of them have gotten kind of close. Uh, None of them really have that that same level of uh, of distribution of of power. Jamison, let me ask you one last question: Where do you see the future of Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and blockchain technology in the next three to five years? Well, one of the most exciting things about the space is that it's so cutting edge that it, it's hard to predict. Um, you know, what, what it'll be like in five years. I mean, uh, you know, if you asked this five years ago, I never would have been able to say, oh, you know, we'll be transacting on these second layer networks that are highly private and highly scalable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in fact, I probably would have told you something about, well, we need to have on-chain scaling and create much larger blocks in order to facilitate everybody's transactions. And so I think, the the one thing that I am confident of is that the this system is going to continue to evolve, possibly in ways that we can't imagine if there are, are more technological breakthroughs from all of the research that is going on. But I am confident that, you know, in general, the space is going to continue to trudge along towards uh, becoming more mainstream. We are going to see more traditional financial companies that are getting into crypto, whether it's Bitcoin or some other blockchain or their own blockchain-based networks. And in general, 
cryptocurrency and crypto assets are going to become a, a larger part of, of mainstream life. I'm, I'm not going to go to the point of predicting that, you know, everything is going to be put on a blockchain because that is silly for a variety of different use cases. But I think that we're, we're going to see um, normalization and we're going to see continued improvement in the, the user experience to the point that uh, a number of people may very well end up using Bitcoin and related technologies without even knowing it. And I think that that is basically a requirement in order for this technology to go mainstream because I, I look at it similar to the way that the internet itself has evolved where people are using you know, these applications on their phones that they have no idea what the level of complexity is of, of all of the code and the networking and the communication going back and forth and even the encryption, you know, protecting a lot of that data. It's all abstracted away and all the user really knows is, hey, I'm, you know, tapping on different parts of the screen on my phone and it's doing stuff. And so I, I think that is the goal ultimately for trying to get Bitcoin to a mainstream adoption level is that we're going to continue to make it more user-friendly and we're going to continue to make the security and the best practices actually baked into the hardware and software so that we can reduce the, the level of, of education that is required to operate safely in this space. I mean, if you look at my educational resources, you could easily spend probably months or, or half a year trying to dig through them all. And I, I like to believe that I've ingested the vast majority of that concept myself over the past number of years, but we can't possibly expect the average person to even scratch the surface of that. And so we need to continue to, to build out the, the software, the applications within the system so that it actually becomes a, a trustworthy thing where people are confident that they can you know, buy their hardware wallet or, or set up their software wallet and they don't have to worry about shooting themselves in the foot and losing all of their money. And that, that is, you know, something that I've been working on for the past, oh, five years now is just this very low level uh, security and usability of these protocols. And I think we've still got a long ways to go, but we've made a lot of improvements over the past few years. And I definitely can't wait to see, uh, you know, how many more improvements we'll have uh, built out over the next three to five years. Jameson, thank you so much for teaching me today. Thank you for teaching, teaching my listeners as well. I really do appreciate you joining me on the show, and I appreciate all that you do for the ecosystem. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Promise me you will have a good day. Thanks. Glad to be here.